From Reboot, this is In Quarantine. I'm Steve Bodo, here talking life during Corona. Got a great discussion with writers Idris Goodwin and Adam Mansback coming up. Uh, but first, I was on Twitter yesterday because uh, I like jokes and anger. And I saw a good one from my friend Kurt Anderson. It was about the fallout from Donald Trump's Tulsa rally a couple weeks back. Uh, it went like this. Apparently, in the U.S., there's four deaths now per 100 confirmed COVID cases. And there's now 500 confirmed cases that they're attributing to Trump's rally. So Kurt did the math, which comes out to 20 deaths. And the way he put it was, human sacrifice required to please the leader briefly, 20, which is grotesque, but I also thought it was about right, but not exactly right, because we have to remember that rally didn't even please the leader for that long. You remember the disheveled picture of Trump coming off the helicopter late that night. He was pissed because not enough people went to that rally. The human sacrifice wasn't big enough. And it wasn't just Trump who was upset about the Tulsa situation. It seems like other gods were too, because this week, Supreme Court officially took Eastern Oklahoma, which includes Tulsa, away from white people. That's a real thing. The court decided five to four that nearly half the state of Oklahoma is actually still Native American reservation. People thought that this was a liberal ruling, but I think it was actually a conservative warning. You don't show up for Trump, white folks, you will lose your land. And that had to hurt. It had to hurt because the deciding vote was Gorsuch. That's Trump's guy. And that means Donald Trump will now preside over the transfer of more territory from white people to Indians than any other president. Make America great again. All right, let's get to my guests. They are both creators in just about every medium you can think of. Idris Goodwin is a playwright, a breakbeat poet, a screenwriter, an educator, and head of the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center at Colorado College. He's also a frequent collaborator with Adam Mansback, a Bay Area author, screenwriter, producer, and I'm just going to say cultural entrepreneur who recently followed up his best-known work, the world-famous parenting guide called Go the Fuck to Sleep, with a coronavirus guidebook entitled Stay the Fuck at Home. And uh, more recently than that, and together with an all-star list of Black poets and writers, they just created a really stunning video for Black Lives Matter, which we're going to get into in a little bit. Uh, Idris, Adam, welcome to In Quarantine. What up? Nice to be here. Thank you. Hey, what's up? What up? What up? Hey, hey. Uh, so where are you guys? That's something we have to ask in this quarantine situation. Are you are in separate places, I assume. Yeah, I tried to... I tried to um... I tried to be in quarantine at Adam's house, man, but he, he, they turned out the lights and pretended like they weren't at home. So I had to come back here to, uh, to, uh, to, to Louisville, uh, to Louisville. That's, that's where I, that's where I live now. So we just, we've been here since March, just chilling, hunkering down. In Louisville, Kentucky. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Rihanna so Taylor has yeah, been going down out here, man. It's yeah, that's, uh, here. that's 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 a heavy situation in Louisville. Oh, yeah, man. There's so, a lot of helica- a lot of helicopters, a lot of sirens every night, mixed in with the cicadas. You know, is it's it been still, going is down. It, is it still going on? It's been going like on, down, man. Like, oh yeah, on a nightly basis. Nightly we were basis. Back, we we live in Brooklyn. Uh, I'm upstate right now, but we live in Brooklyn, and uh, we happened to be back uh, like right when the curfews were going down and the, and the biggest protests. And it, yeah, it was like, it was the 24 hour helicopter party in there. Yeah. But, th- but yeah. that was only a few days worth and it's still going on for you, huh? Well, you know, they still haven't um, uh, really, you know, they're, 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 yeah, they haven't been really 
any punishments or, or arrests uh, for these guys that shot Breonna Taylor. And so um, there'll, there'll be a reckoning soon. Um, but until then, they're keeping the pressure on. You know, so it's, it's it's pretty pathetic. It's pretty sad. But uh, but yeah, the people not not leaving till it till till the work is done. And Adam, where are you? I'm in Berkeley, California. And, you know, I gotta say, I I wish that Idris was quarantining with me because we'd have had like a four month conversation about which Boogie Down Productions album is the best one that we'd be we'd be like just waking up every day like Idris, you ready? Oh yeah, forget about it. So let's talk about this uh, this piece of work that you just put out um, and how it fits also into what you guys are doing in the, in the bigger picture in this cultural moment. It's this video called What to My People is the Fourth of July. We're going to play a clip. What to my people is the Fourth of July? My people who are failed every day by every country, sleepless in the long night, terrorized by fireworks. We who have cried salt baths for our kin. We deserve a break. We deserve to laugh, talk shit, and scream. Every day I'm waiting for rain. Some indication that this land I'm set to die on will grow good enough to deserve me. What to us is your 4th of July? Halos and kinks of fire, a middle finger, an ugly foil, a rain, a joke, where we are the punchline. A lie until you make it otherwise. There's obviously a whole video component too, which is maybe something Frederick Douglass wasn't thinking about 150 years ago when he wrote uh, the anti-slavery speech that inspired this thing called What to the Slave is the 4th of July. But uh, you guys tell me, how did this thing, how did it come together? This came together after I did the Sam Jackson uh, Stay the Fuck at Home video, I ended up kind of getting a, a grant to do more videos. And this was an updating of an idea that I'd had about 10 years earlier. I had envisioned sort of a standing writer's room of folks who were collectively prepared to respond to the news cycle um, in collaboration with kind of progressive organizations. You know, something happens you quickly get informed and you knock out, say, a New York Times op-ed piece. Um, and, you know, a friend of mine who I'd pitched that idea to in this kind of embryonic stage came back to me and said she wanted to kind of fund a pilot version of that program. Um, and in that time that it elapsed, my conception of what was necessary had changed. It had pivoted much more toward video toward a kind of use of humor and also the leveraging of the power of celebrity in order to cut through all of the noise and make a cultural impact in this moment. And this idea came to me from a collaborator of mine, a guy named Josh Healy. He had this idea to make you know, a remix, so to speak, of the Frederick Douglass speech. The idea of getting nine writers to do it was my idea. He thought I was fucking crazy. He was like, you're going to have nine people write this thing? Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Like, I've spent a lot of time in writer's rooms, but it's, you know, it's been for comedy and joke writing. What I haven't heard about before is getting a writer's room together to write what's essentially poetry. Yeah, it was kind of an experiment. Um, my co-lead writer on this, co-lead editor, I should say, because I didn't do any writing on this, um is a woman named uh, Safia El Hilo, and she and I put this list of writers together. We reached out to folks. We told them what we wanted them to do, 
told them not to spend too long on it because we didn't have enough to pay them for more than an hour of their time, told them not to give us more than you know a page or a half a page, let them know that we would be essentially stitching this thing together, taking their contributions and turning it into a collective piece. So it's a collage type of method rather than uh, iterations of the thing going back and back and back. Yeah. Yeah. No one saw all of the contributions except for Safia and me. And we took them and made them into this new thing. And Idris, you were one of the people, obviously, who they came to. Yes. Yes. I was one of the the lucky names on the list. Um, so how did, uh, were you familiar with the original, with the, the 1850s piece? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as a, um, I do a lot of playwriting around, uh, about history. And so I've actually written, uh, a play about, um, I have a play called The Raid, which is about John Brown and Frederick Douglass in there. Um, they had sort of three major meetings, um, in their lifetimes. Um, one of them was like, just a, a few months before the the raid on Harper's Ferry, and John Brown was trying to always persuade him to go with him. So I knew about a lot about Frederick Douglass. So it's a speech I love. I think it's it's amazing and important. And so yeah, this was like again, like yeah, of course, no problem, all right. day. I'll do this every day if you want. So I, I I thought it was also very dope, just in terms of a of a project, like a new mode or a new approach to. Um, you know, a new lane for poets, right? It's like in the tradition of the posse record on a hip hop song too, where it's like, we all can respond. We all, you know, play with language and we blend it together into kind of one voice. It took the pressure off of like, okay, Idris, you, you know, like you need to write that definitive updated poem. It, it took the pressure off to be like, I'm just going to speak. Mm. I'm just going to think. I'm just going to freestyle and you take what's useful, you know? Uh, so it, it felt new to me in that way, like a new lane a little bit. Was David uh, on board at that time? Because that would also give you maybe a level of comfort if you know that your words are going to be coming from a performer of that caliber. Yeah, no, I think when when the ask went out, we didn't have David yet. Um, so the the writers were not able to write like for him specifically, knowing that he was going to be the guy. We told them that we were going to get somebody dope. And, you know, not for nothing, these are a lot of Diggs' favorite writers. You know, the quality of the work and the caliber of the people involved was definitely a big factor in Diggs wanting to do this. Right. So, Idris, from, uh, so you know the 19th century text, we're in this moment. What did you want to take from it? What did you find inspiring? What did you, uh, you know, what did you want to adapt to make this idea speak to this moment? I mean, honestly, man, it was it was easy to write write because it's just it's what we you know I think it's just intuitive. I think it's on the mind of a lot of black folk every day, all day, at all times. Because most of the time, these are the things that we're often um, dissuade from discussing, or you know what I mean, silenced indirectly many ways of getting into, and so. To have the invitation to express just something that's very deeply felt and pretty much on the tip of the tongue uh, of most black folk was like it wasn't it wasn't no thing at all on, on the <laughs> tip all. Uh, uh, yeah on the tip of the tongue despite being a 150 year old text the relevance is still right there yeah well because I think there's something about the tradition of black oration that is about something. Um, that that is deeper than words. That's deeper than language itself. It's it's a spirit, and it's um, 
it's carrying forth a certain kind of truth that, uh, you know, is drilled into you, you know, depending on who your parents are. But, but, you know, my parents, my folks, they drilled this, this strong foundation of black history into you. And it's through song, it's through language, it's through speeches. And so it, you carry it with you. It's a part of you. So Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr. and Sonia Sanchez, Nikki Giovanni, Ego Trip, all these things are sewn into me. And so, you know, we'll all know the moment they're no longer relevant. And so we carry them with us because these are survival. These are, these are rules. These are, these are sacred survival texts. And Adam, I want to ask you, and this is, I feel like this is a little tricky to ask you, but uh, what'd you, you're a white guy. I got to say that on a podcast here because people don't necessarily know, but you're a white guy, right? Mm -hmm. So what's your role in putting this all together? Black writers, uh, historically black speech, etc. What's what's your role as you see it? Um, I saw my role as to step back, let the writing happen, just as being the person who was presenting the opportunity, and then letting folks do the the heavy lifting of bringing the message to life, taking it in any direction they wanted. Everybody knew the Douglas speech. We were like, what we're really trying to address is simply what does the 4th of July look like, feel like for black people in America right now? That was it. Um, and the the unity of the responses, um, all from different points of view, all in different voices, but the overlap of the sentiments was profound and, and almost total. Yeah. Can I add something, Steve, just, just based on your, your question? Um, <clears throat> I, I think one of the things that really bothers me uh, is when I hear, you know, white people say, hey, you know, this is a time for, for us to just listen. And really, and it's <laughs> like, no, no, actually, it's not. It's actually for you to do something else, but you should listen to what they say and then go do something. And so I think to me, the, the, what, you know, Adam and, and Josh, did here was to me a great case study, which is like, let's create a platform, you know, for a variety of black voices and let's do so to um, also fund an organization like Movement for Black Lives. Let's all, you know, it, it, it and also raise our profile, like each of us as writers, like, you know, you know, it was, it was a really beautiful thing where like people like W. Kamau Bell, Farrell Monch, people who have you know, sort of bigger platforms than some of us, you know, are now checking for others, you know, of us across the meet. So to me, it's the sort of thing that white folks should look at and say, oh, this is how you do this work. Like, it's not about just sitting idly by and which, which really is just code for like, I'm just going to just, just go into my little shell and my hole right. until this cools off. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, while I think it is definitely a worthwhile question to say, you know, what is your role in this? I, I definitely don't want to, I just want to underline and echo the whole construction of it and the positions, how everyone positioned themselves and what roles they had to play in, in the whole thing being successful. Right. And, and I will say, you know, when I was uh, doing a little research on uh, on each of you guys, um, something I found that that really made uh, impressed me uh, about Adam was that it was from like a, a 2011 thing, I think, like a little thing about a book review you had done in the in the Times or something. 
but you were dropping the phrase white privilege. Like, I know that phrase was not in my vocabulary in 2011, but the term, which has become the term, you were on that 10 years ago, even. Yeah, I don't remember. I mean, it, I mean, to be honest, it's not particularly significant to me to to mark when that term entered the terminology. You know, I don't think that that term is necessarily an improvement over the way we talked about these things 20 years before that, when we talked about structural racism, uh, racial hierarchies, um, white supremacy, you know, right. um, you know, like, like, I think white white privilege is in many ways a a, a, a very toned down version, a very mm-hmm. toned down and possibly more friendly version. Well, um, which which might be why it's become then, acceptable. It might be yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of like low key think that that term white privilege is like not effective, and uh, mm. and, and we need to stick to like white supremacy and breaking that down and and critical you know study of what is the construction of whiteness. What do you think is in white supremacy that's not in white privilege. White supremacy to me is is really what we're talking. Like that's that's the big that's the mothership. It's like someone constructed whiteness and then they created a system called white supremacy, which includes white privilege. Uh but, you know, to me it's that's a larger, more insidious um kind of thing that we can that we have to deconstruct, you know what I mean? Um Idris, you uh, relatively recently put out a series of of short play scripts. Uh, open source available to anybody um, that I think you call anti-racist plays. Do you have that right? Uh, what did I call them? I call them open source scripts for uh, anti-racist tomorrow. What, what makes a play specifically anti-racist? Well, really, the, what the, the idea of the plays is just to is just to spark the conversation. So the plays, I don't. I'm not saying the plays are anti-racist. I'm saying oh, okay. that the plays can be a tool, one very small tool. Uh, towards the work of um, dismantling anti-racism. So it's, and they're specifically for like parents um, and educators to broach with young people. And it's because, you know, there's something about stepping into the role of someone else that's just inherently, um, that just does something to people, even, even if, you know, they're playing the bad guy or whatever, like. Yeah, it's an act of empathy. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, they're short, they're really straightforward. (laughs) And, um, uh, and I know a lot of folks are at home, you know, trying to explain to their kids like what does black lives matter mean uh so yeah it was just it was just and it was also just my challenge to uh the theater industry's exclusivity and ridiculous uh archaic ideas about access and and just be like you know i'm gonna get my plays all over the country in 10 days you know just using this tool that everybody's on and you know we didn't have any plan for it just kind of did it and uh it just kind of started traveling so you know that's what that's about um, and Adam, uh, you, you're also, you're starting up a new, I don't know what you call it. What would you want to call your, uh, I think you just called it like a venture on the email that I saw the, uh, we talked about Cole House Walker political outcomes. That's what I'm talking about. Cole House yeah. Walker political outcomes, which is, yeah, <laughs> which is one yeah. of my favorite names for an organization. Yeah, well, it's, <laughs> it's it's funny. I mean, like so many things in my life, it started out as a joke and then sort of slowly metamorphosized into an actual thing. You'd be surprised oh, how often that happens to joke, me. Oh, um, oh uh, jokes are dangerous know. things, my friend. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Next thing you know, you know, you make a joke. I, I'm going to write a book called Go the Fuck to Sleep. And then, you know, next thing you know, you wrote a book called Go the Fuck to Sleep. Cole House Walker <laughs> Political Outcomes came about 10 years ago from a series of conversations I had with my friend uh, Daniel Alarcon, who's a novelist, which means that like myself, he knocked off work around two o'clock and wanted to drink coffee in a cafe every day. So that's what we would do every day here in Oakland. And um, we started talking about how the political landscape was so absurd that everybody should just start hiring novelists to run their campaigns and do their ads. And so we envisioned this kind of shady political consulting firm, like the Blackwater of political consulting firms, and we named it Cole House Walker Political Outcomes, but based on one of my favorite characters in fiction, um, the the relentless and very cagey uh, protagonist of Ragtime. Um, I don't even remember why we called it that. I think we had maybe both read the book recently or something. I, I who knows. Um, I mean, but, he was, uh, he was, yeah, he was, so I he, mean, he was, a, he was definitely a, a stirring up shit type of guy in that book, which I, oh, yeah, that, absolutely. Was, so I took that to be like some of the inspiration there. We put up a fake website with a lot of double speak, like shit, like winning isn't the only thing, it's the only thing. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, what Cold House Walker looks like today is, yeah, kind of hopefully savvy interventions into the cultural, political media landscape, you know, using humor, using celebrity to make videos and put out other forms of work that will hopefully be widely seen um, and can challenge some assumptions, make some points, stir some shit up, that kind of thing. So basically now in my fucking spare time, I run an ad agency. Yeah. An ad agency pointed in a certain direction. It doesn't sound like you're going to be promoting uh, like snack foods anytime soon no not to my knowledge although if the right snack food company walked in the door i would probably take their money i know you had mentioned something that was coming up but maybe maybe that's premature to discuss that um the next thing i have coming out via cole house walker political outcomes is a video called 912 what's your emergency which is a little different than the last one with david diggs that idris and everybody wrote um, it's a skit, really, that I wrote and I'm directing. Um, the concept of it basically is that since white people keep calling 911 to sick the cops on black folks for no reason, we now have a new phone number for them to call. Um, their calls get redirected to 912, where the operators tell them you know, some shit they need to hear about themselves. Um, <laughs> I'm excited about this. Because I get to work with a pretty amazing cast. Um, Craig Robinson, who's a, a longtime collaborator of mine. He and I have written three books together at this point. Um, Kamau Bell, another good friend and, and often a co-writer of mine. Um, and then Sarah Silverman, Sarah Cooper, and Louis Black are all in the video. So I'm excited about that. And, um, you know, is, is right in line with sort of everything that I consider part of the mandate of Cold House Walker to do, you know, be funny, uh, bring an amazing cast, do shit that will cut through all of the noise. I feel like this video, unless I really, really fuck it up, is going to do that. Uh, Adam, I, I want to ask you to give this a reboot podcast. Reboot is this, uh, you know, Jewish cultural incubator. Uh, you seem to be a Jewish cultural incubator. How, if at all, <laughs> does, does your Jewish identity like intersect with the kind of work that you're doing these days? Uh, uh, 
you know, especially with the, the racial justice sort of aspect of it. You know, I think my lens on Judaism has always been very much a, a cultural and artistic one. The parts of being Jewish that I've always connected with most easily have been a certain body of work by Jewish writers, Jewish thinkers, Jewish comedians, people who whose voice largely came from understanding very well what the margins felt like. Um, to me, one of the most interesting things about Judaism is the size, the width of its margins. There are a lot of ways to feel alienated from Judaism without ever abandoning it, right? Um, to have a conflicted relationship to it. And I think that that puts the folks on those margins in tune with and in touch with other margins, other forms of marginalization. Um, so to me, there's a profound, there's a social justice tradition. It's similar to that empathy we were talking about with Idris and like yeah, how, how, it works in, how it works in theater. You step into somebody else's shoes, it's a kind of empathy or analogous to what you're saying. Maybe. I, I think that there's a piece of that, yes. Um, you know, I grew up in a in a very kind of politically progressive home in a fairly politically progressive larger f- community and and family and you know these values were always ones that to me seemed synonymous with Judaism to the point where it it still confuses me when I like come across conservative Jews because it it almost seems anathema to my <laughs> to my understanding um you know like I was that ensconced in a certain kind of sensibility, you know? Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and also, you know, as somebody who thinks a lot about race and works a lot and and has worked a lot uh, with traditionally Black art forms like hip hop and, you know, I think a lot about the the, the complexity, the affinities, the tensions between Black and Jewish communities. And I always have because those have been the communities in which I've always spent the most time. so I think that's very much at the heart of a lot of the work that I do. How did that start uh, back in? What, you're from you're from the Northeast someplace, right? Yeah, I'm from Boston. And so how, how did that? Um, what was that, that initial start? connection? Yeah, that initial connection to uh, to uh, black culture, hip hop culture. I mean, it, it came essentially just from listening to the music, discovering the music long before it was in the mainstream when you had to hunt it down when it existed on certain low rent radio stations for 2 hours a week certain stores had the releases most did not um sounds, I was like mid 80s or something yeah mid 80s exactly i mean you know i was very immediately captivated by the power of the poetry and the sound and the energy of hip hop so you know I was also lucky enough to be 12 in 1988. So when hip hop was reaching a certain kind of socio-political crest in terms of explicitly talking about things like Eurocentricity in education, apartheid in South Africa, you know, Cointelpro, Reaganomics. 88 is um, takes a nation of millions, right? 88 takes a nation of millions to hold us back. It's Stetsasonic, it's Boogie Down Productions, it's the Jungle Brothers, it's NWA, it's any number of things. It's a great time. It made whiteness subjective instead of invisible for the first time ever for me and for a whole generation of kids. Adam, Idris, thanks for joining us. Oh, it was a pleasure, man. Thank you. And for In Quarantine, I'm Steve Bodo saying, I, you know, I think tonight I'll just stay in.